Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I am back from the land of Israel, which was full of lovely people, but frankly, so hot that no one should ever live there. It was like slowly melting constantly for days. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine. Too. I'm slightly disappointed, as I was saying to you off air, that you know that when you're up, you, you're up in Israel and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and these wonderful places, I kept scanning the international news to hear that peace had broken out in the Middle East. Or, and I don't dis- I didn't discount this possibility either, a nuclear attack had been launched mutually between Tel Aviv and Tehran. But I thought one or the other would be uh, would be the the outcome of Gary going to Jerusalem. But no, all we have is very interesting discussions about growing asparagus in the desert. Not that I don't think that that's an important thing to talk about, but still, it's a bit of a dis- bit of a letdown. Anyway, it was hot, and Gary doesn't like hot, so so that's why we're going to send him out there for another seven days in July. <laughs> and then we're going to send him to Washington at the end of July, a city which is called the Swamp, not just because of its moral deficiencies, but the fact that it's 40 degrees and 95% humidity. Gary loves that, don't you, Gary? I'm sure this is what the listeners want to hear about, Michael, the details of my travel calendar for the year. Well, you work hard. I think people should know that you work hard, particularly because you hate it so much when it's hot and humid and everywhere you're going is hot and humid and I take no pleasure in that. It is quite nice to know that you treat my arrival in a location as roughly as important as some sort of biblical prophecy. Roughly, roughly, you know, I mean I think it's uh, not quite the same but you know. We will start this episode Michael with a celebration of sporting prowess. Are you talking about the Manchester City winning the football game last night against my old team, the Inter Milan? International, which is, by the way, can I just say something, Gary? To all the people, the millions of people listening to this, it isn't Milan and it isn't Inter Milan and Milan. It is Inter and Milan. Inter is never Inter Milan, okay? It's just Inter. So please, just stop doing that. It's like making me ask for a one panini. It's one panino, two panini. And waiters make me do this because they know it hurts me. It's one stadium, multiple stadia. Now that's a whole... Yeah, well, no, no, you're, you're trolling me now. I know, I just realised you're trolling me. <laughs> you're going to make me discuss whether or not referendum has a plural of referenda when it, in fact, isn't a noun, but it's a gerund and therefore has a verb form. It, no, stop, stop, Gary. I know what you're at. You're trying... We will not be talking about soccer today, Michael. We're talking about the true sport of kings... Cycling. Oh, cycling, yes. On the bicyclings. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, see, now I know. Now I know where you're going. Okay. Sometimes I don't know where he's going, listeners. And it's a bit of a fun trip for me. But now I know where he's going, so I know where we shall arrive. And what's been happening in this sport of kings, Gary? So there is a large race taking part on the west coast of Ireland at the minute called the Transatlantic Way, a name <laughs> which is actually rather suitable given what's about to happen. Is it actually, sorry, no, seriously, is it actually called the Transatlantic Way? It's called the Transatlantic Way. Wow, that was well planned. It is a 2,500 kilometre unsupported race along the Atlantic coastline. What does that mean? Sorry, you said unsupported. What does unsupported mean? So you've no team with you. Like in the Tour de France, you have a you have a, a, a whole team of people coming on behind in cars. You don't in this. Mm-hmm. Just you and your bike. Just you and your bike on a 2,500 kilometre endurance race, basically. Wow. It is interesting this year, Michael, because of the sheer level of sporting prowess that has been demonstrated at, particularly the women's race, Michael. 
Yeah, there, there's an outstanding athlete, obviously. Because I'm looking at the times and wow. I mean, when you look at the second place woman, Hilary Allen, she has so far cycled a uh, 1,023 kilometres. It's actually still ongoing, so I'm looking at the live readout of it. Of oh, course. Cool. It's a bit unusual for a podcast, I suppose. The third place woman is Gillian Power. She's gone 987 kilometres. The fourth is Kirsten uh, clearly, she's gone 984. So, a uh, small enough gap between three and four, bit more of a gap between two and three. But what we're all here for is the gap between one and two. So again, Hilary Allen, the second place woman, has gone 1,023 kilometers. Cara Dixon, the first place woman, has gone 1,318.9 kilometers which is to say first place is nearly 300 kilometers ahead of second and they're only, Michael, halfway through the race. Meaning at current projections, they will win by 550 to 600 kilometers in a 2,500 kilometer race. That, that's, a, that's a lot of kilometers. I mean, I'm just thinking of comparisons like, say, the Tour de France. With the Tour de France is around 3,500 kilometers. It's slightly different these days. Back in the old days, the difference between the the, the, the front and the, the first guy and the second guy might be was a lot more because they didn't tend to ride in peloton the way they do now. So the gaps are smaller. But I think 2000, there was an Australian or a New Zealander who came second twice. I don't know if he ever won it, but he came second twice and he used came second like tight tight margins i think in 2007 he lost the race by 58 seconds just to contextualize the kind of gaps we're talking about after cycling for three and a half thousand miles or kilometers so it's over two thousand miles at the end of it there was a gap of 58 seconds we're talking about projecting forward a gap of around 500 kilometers gary i mean what would you cycle 500 kilometers with how would you cycle in an hour? Would you cycle? Like if you're 100 kilometers an hour, would you do 50 kilometers an hour? So would that be like, would you do 100 kilometers in two hours? It depends what kind of terrain you're in. If you're on flash, you'd probably be about 25 kilometers an hour. But you can do, it, it depends. It depends how good a cyclist you are. You can do more. But I'm just thinking, even allowing, allowing that, say, they did, if they did 50 kilometers an hour, that would be a, a 10 hour, 10 hour gap. I mean, I know it's a long race. But a 10-hour gap on the basis that uh, you were doing, that would be... <laughs> okay, that is... And that that, that that cyclist is Cara? Cara Dixon. So Cara Dixon is, is first amongst the women's racers. But actually, if you include all racers, including men, they're fifth. Which is pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, they're only 100 kilometers behind the leading man who is, is, is speeding along. Now, of course, the interest here is that as we probably got from the joke in the name, that Cara Dixon is transgender and 300 kilometers ahead of, you know, an actual woman. And there are some women who are a bit peeved by this and feel it's unfair. Well, I can't imagine that Hillary Allen is enjoying this too much. Well, you don't know, Gary. I mean, I, when it comes to the sports issue, I have seen some uh, cis women sporting types when asked about this coming out and... It's all been arms around the shoulders and hugs and kisses. I've seen other podia where you've had a very chilly sort of situation where two or three cis women are standing clustered together and looking up at the gold medalist or whatever with a degree of hostility. 
Do you remember that was the there was a press conference? I think it was weightlifting. I, did you see this? And uh, a question was asked about the participation of trans athletes in the women's sector in this, and there was this kind of silence, and nobody said anything. And then one one uh, athlete, one female athlete, leaned forward and just said, uh, "No, thank you." And then that was it. And I think <laughs> that might. But I, I, you don't know. You don't know, Gary, how the ladies, some of the ladies may be very happy with it and some of them may be absolutely spitten. But yet, yes, if, were, it, were it I, were it I, Gary, I would not be a bit happy. I would be, I would feel like I was being done. Well, I mean, this is an endurance race. You're obviously going to train for this. You're probably going to train quite hard. There's a lot of work involved in doing a 20, like not just a two and a half thousand kilometer race, but one without support. And you train and you train and you get there and you go in and you're 40 kilometers ahead of your nearest rival, Michael, to get into second place. And then you realize that the first place is 300 kilometers ahead of you. Um, kind of hard to beat that. That's a sort of, yes, you trained and, you know, good on you, but there's no physical way for you to do this. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Like, you're just not winning. I, I suppose that's the problem. I, if from a from a, a cis um, base, which is uh, for those who get confused by these things, because and a few people have asked me this, you know, where does it come from? Anybody who is of a certain age and that might have gone to a certain kind of school for their intercert would have done Caesar's Gallic Wars, and they remember that all of Gaul was divided into three parts, and there was Gaul, which was the other side of the Alps, which was trans Alpine Gaul. So when people are thinking, what what word can we use for people who are not trans? So if you got a woman who is a woman but isn't a trans woman, what would you call her? Well, the opposite to the transalpine, well, not that side of the, of the Alps, was this side of the Alps, was called cisalpine Gaul. And therefore, cis would be the opposite of trans. And therefore, that this became cis. Now, people think, hey, have this notion means birth or born. No, it's just... It's not one side is transalpine, this is cisalpine, so you have trans women and cis women. So if you're a cis woman, the problem, Gary, is that you know, irrespective of your talent, pretty well on it. You can train and 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 work and work and work and work and work, and it won't actually make a difference. And that must be incredibly frustrating and annoying and dispiriting and all that kind of stuff. And yet the thing is, have you seen this? I have seen Serious, well, allegedly serious people, mostly politicians, not often sports scientists, go on and say there is no evidence of a persistence of advantage. And, you know, this is nonsense. And the the differences are infinitesimal. And we don't really know if there are any differences at all. And that's just nonsense. Silly. I mean, it's just silly. I have seen it. It's become less, it's become more difficult for them over the last while because more, as, you know, as the transgender population has grown, more studies have been undertaken into this and those have shown consistent, long-lasting structural benefits that cannot be gotten rid of. So it's looking at the stats here, Michael, here's the interesting thing. Carrie Dixon is faster than the people she's racing against absolutely much faster on inclines which is hardly surprising given that men tend to be stronger and that comes into play on the inclines but what is also particularly interesting is they're sleeping significantly less than their competition oh that's interesting isn't it yeah yeah so faster stronger not sleeping as much as you uh, equates to 
yeah, 300 kilometers in the difference. Now, what I'm interested in actually here is how much do the people who are racing realize what's happening? Both the people behind Dixon and also Dixon themselves. Because if they have anyone who is talking to them, you would expect at some point they're going to say something like, maybe you want to slow down for a while because beating these people by 550 kilometers is not good. You're going into taking the piss territory. Well, it's the kind of thing that will, yeah, first of all, it, it looks a bit like you're, you're taking the piss. Secondly, it really isn't a good advertisement for the idea that actually there is no real big advantage. But leading on from that, imagine we were talking about a group of athletes who all shared the same biological heritage or whatever you want to call it, right? And one of those athletes then suddenly develops a sprint and suddenly they go from being winning by 0.01, they they wouldn't start winning by like a third of a second in a, in a speed, like massive thing. Or, or if it's if it's if it's a, if it's a, like a five hundred a five thousand meter race, whatever it is, they start winning instead of winning by twenty and thirty seconds, they're starting winning by four or five minutes. That the, what would then happen in in those circumstances is everybody would say, "I wonder, are they doping?" Uh, you, that would people when you when you see athletes they, they suddenly develop massive improvements. There's this sense of People start to speculate about what's been going on. And the last, and one of the things, of course, that you do is you use testosterone. The last thing that anybody in this particular community wants to do is to have people talking more about the potential advantages of taking testosterone. Because this is essentially what we're talking about, isn't it, Gary? It's not, it will, we're not necessarily talking, because there will there will be tested people, athletes will be tested for testosterone level. The advantage that is believed to accrue is, to, is the advantage that you accrue simply by going through adolescence or puberty as a male, that going through that period that when you complete, when you become an adult, that you, you, your bones, your body, your organ, all of your body has gone, has been washed in testosterone. You then may transition, and as a result of transition, you may take hormone-suppressing drugs, you may take estrogen, you take female hormones. So it's not that you necessarily, that you, I, and I, you, you may do, I don't know uh, the science on that. Maybe they, there are still higher or elevated levels of hormone. I presume if you had an orchid, what is the phrase? Orchidectomy? Is it? Orchidectomy? When the testes are removed, then that would mean that the production of testosterone would obviously be significantly reduced. But it's the, you're, 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 it's the post-pubescent testosterone advantage that persists. There is a general, when transgender people in, uh, take part in women's sports, there's one of the common things that you'll hear from people who are against it is that these are people who can't compete in the male sport and basically want to win. And there's you know sort of insinuation that that is why they are transitioning. To be fair, most of the transgender athletes we've seen have not been you know terribly good at what they did before they transitioned. I think the problem that you might have here is that Dixon is actually very good in the men's side of things. And so when you change over to the female side of things, you simply absolutely dominate the field and no one can do anything to stop you. Yeah, I mean, if you're starting from a a higher bit, like, for example, if you're a tennis player, if if you're a formerly male tennis player and you are in the top 100 male tennis players and you're to transition, there is a decent chance... We don't know. I mean, Rennie Richards famously was one of the first trans athletes back in the 70s. Rennie Richards was... Uh, but when Rennie Richards transitioned, she, 
she was in the end of her career. She was in her mid thirties. I mean, you know, so it wasn't. It wasn't really. It was still very had a very successful career as a women's tennis player. But if you got someone younger and say in the top hundred men, and I'm not sure where Richards had been ranked. I think she'd been ranked maybe as a college player. I'm not sure as a professional. Like I don't honestly know. But someone in the top hundred now. There is a. There is a. I've got, I talked to people in, in tennis about this, and they said there is a, a kind of curiosity, a belief that maybe if everything went according to plan, that somebody, say, a number of 97 man, could just dominate women's tennis. Because, as famously in the discussion was had about Serena Williams and John McEnroe, who said Serena was the finest women's tennis player of all time, and he was challenged, well, why not the best player of all time? McEnroe observed that, well, yeah, except... Any man in the top 400 would beat her, which caused absolute paroxysms of how could you say such a thing? For Serena, to be fair, herself said that Andy, Andy Murray had challenged her for a game and he, she, she laughed and said, you know what, if I played Andy, it would be over six love, six love in 10 minutes kind of thing. So Serena wasn't taking part with this. But the, if you had someone, shall we say, relatively high level coming in, that, that really, the gap becomes problematic and i think that maybe is what people are thinking about here that the what we're talking about projected gap of up to 500 kilometers and that's just a little a bit too much i pulled uh or had a look at some of dixon's racing records because this isn't the first kind of uh, quite long cycle race that they've taken part in obviously they're very into this sort of thing earlier in this year there was a, a 200 kilometer gravel cycle that they came first in in the female category. They were an hour ahead of second place. Well, an hour and five minutes. And how long was the race? 200 kilometers. 200k and they were an hour. Ooh. Yeah. Yes. So like, kind of hard to beat that. That's tricky. I suppose, I, I suppose the question here, Michael, is this is being done on the notion that we should be fair to transgender athletes. But the question I would ask is this. If you were a female athlete and you have trained for this and you've put, you know, your mind, body and soul into this and you've done everything you can, how is this fair to you? There are biological differences within the sexes. Some people are just better suited to certain things because of their body structure, uh, because of whatever. This kind of gap does not really happen within the sexes. This has to be from outside the sexes. And you can't compete to it. There's no way for you to win unless this person breaks a leg and even then they're so far ahead of you that they might still be able to do it i understand that but the core of the problem is the belief as stated and become is a it's a chant or a mantra or a an antiphon trans women are women and in that context you might say it's a slightly odd that uh, there should be any qualification in trans women cis women maybe it's like they're subsets it's of a species i don't know but trans women are women and if trans women are women in a in exactly the same sense and meaning that cis women are women then what justification can you have for excluding them for activities that are restricted to women and if you if you do restrict it you say no you can't well then The obvious implication is that they are, in some fundamental and essential sense, not the same. That this is not a a category of identity, but the category of difference. Now, there is some kind of category difference between cis women and trans women. And that is metaphysically, philosophically offensive 
to these people. They mean, you can't say that. We either we believe that this is a, a category of identity where trans women, cis women, same thing, or you're not. And if you if you treat them, if you exclude them from women activity, then you're making that statement, and that's not acceptable, and it's unethical, and it's immoral, and it's it's a, it's a transgression of the rights of those women, because they will say, well, all women in sports have some kind of a physical advantage that they're born with. Talent is something that people are born with, a capacity for three dimensionalization, working within spatial, if you're playing tennis or basketball or something like that, ball sports, foot, hand-eye coordination. These are all things which are physical things which we are born with. Some have better than others. Long twitch muscles, short twitch muscles, all these things. And you cannot discriminate against people simply because they have a certain physical advantage in their bodies. And because all to do that is to introduce a corner of the world where you do not believe that trans women are in fact actually simply women. And if there is a corner of the world where that is allowed to happen, well then that means that ultimately we don't really believe that to be true. And that why if it if it can be true in that area of the world, why wouldn't it ultimately start to seep into the rest of our act, our social life and activity? I think the the problem that people have here and, and you see it mostly in politicians and their new inability to actually describe what a woman is. Yeah is that this ideology is fundamentally incoherent, does not hold up to scrutiny, never has. I mean, it's never been terribly well put together. So if you accept part of it, you then find yourself scrambling to explain why certain things are okay and how someone can both be a woman and have to be excluded from things that are for women because they're also clearly not a woman. Whereas I think the appropriate answer here is to take the approach that Alexander took to the Gordian knot. I just simply say, these people are not women. They have never been women. By any standard understanding of what a woman is, whether it is biological, metaphysical, social, anything of that nature, these people are not women. Whether they are some third category you want to have, maybe, if you want to argue that. That is really up to society. If enough people come to believe they constitute a third category, they effectively will. And none of this is... You know, this is obviously to say that every individual shouldn't be treated with humanity and decency and respect. And frankly, in this day and age, if an adult wants to behave and disport themselves in any way, shape or form regarding how they present themselves, how they dress, how they speak, the, how they occupy themselves, that's absolutely their own business. And good luck, God bless. Uh, I hope it stays fine for you. Uh, to me, it's, this has always looked like a metaphysical problem because I don't understand it. There's, there seems to me to be a curious rejection of the body. Uh, you know, it's like a Cartesian idea of like we're just the body is just like a meat flat. You were just ghosts of the machine, but we have souls, and these souls have genders. And how a soul has a gender, I don't understand. And how the soul gets put into the wrong body, I don't understand. But that's the only way it seems to be coherent that somehow your soul gets into the wrong body, and it needs you. Need, and but then, why do you need to change your physical body when you're? I mean, why? Why would it matter? Now, Michael, I'm sure that we and everyone listening agree that the root cause of this is a resurgence of the Gnostic mind-body heresy. That's, you know, everyone agrees on that. Well, yeah, and yeah, I mean, thanks for stating the bleeding obvious, Gary. I mean, obviously we all agree on that. Uh, at the end of the day, everything goes back to the Gnostics, the bastards. Actually, here's a, here's a question for you, Michael. A lot of this stuff is done basically because people want to be nice. Yes, and correct. People have taken 
activists have taken that empathy and basically weaponized it to yeah, get what they want. compassion i mean this is and empathy and here's a here's a little question though if you are a transgender athlete and you want to compete against women knowing how many advantages you have does that not also strongly indicate that your lack of sportsmanship should mean that you shouldn't be allowed you just want to be the best you can be gary you know you want to go out there you want to put in the yeah, work yeah you see that's that's the thing though if you if you want to compete against people who you have structural advantages over and which you know are larger than those found anywhere else in nature you don't really want to compete you want to win that's a different thing. I just feel like Gary, what you're what you're doing here is you're punishing me for being a better woman than these women are. No, uh, no, I'm saying they should be punished because they're not women. Yeah, and of course that's really what you're saying. You're saying that I, as as a trans woman athlete, I'm I'm not actually a woman, and I'm not just that. That is a form of that is that is violence, Gary. And by the way, it will very soon be a criminal offence. Well, yes, but I, I've had that happen in conversation, by the way, with uh, someone I know who's very, very progressive. And I was saying something about transgenderism. And we're like, that sounds like you're saying that these people aren't women. Like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. They're not women. And there was just this moment of, oh, and it's almost like they expected they would say that. And I would say, oh, no, 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 no. I would never say something no, no. like that, of course, because we're all lovely people here who have the right opinions. And when I said, well, they're not women, they just there was a sort of, oh, well, now I've got I've got no power here now. <laughs> it's why these people are so successful at bullying the left into doing things because the left give a shit about their opinions yes. and also agree with them on some principles and just think they've gone too far whereas I don't so I don't care we this whole weapon you can call it weaponized compassion weaponized empathy weaponized sympathy I don't know whatever it is toxic sympathy it is this thing which is driving so much of this I don't want oh god I don't want to be hurtful and you hear it in the language. Well, that is literally violent. And in the language of this debate, I mean, this has probably, Gary, the most extreme hysterical rhetoric. The word genocide is regularly used. You see it in everything. The, the language on everything has gone to this sort of very feminized extent. Even the war in Ukraine, Michael. How often have you heard that the most important thing is peace? Which one of those lovely things? But I don't agree with that. I hear that from some people. I don't hear that from other people, Gary. I have to say, the Ukrainians I, I hear don't are not saying that. And in fact, I, I there's quite a strong element of toxic masculinity about a lot of the Ukrainians that I come across. Um, it, Even putting aside like a, a lot of the politics of that opinion in this in, in this particular instance, mm. there seem to be a particular amount of people who are like, well, peace is legitimately the most important thing. To which I'd have to say, no, sometimes violence is both appropriate and good. Well, I, again, without getting into the particulars of this specific situation, it seems to me that at, if we were to take even a crude utilitarian approach, that there are times when it's obvious that in order to avoid more nasty, horrible war and suffering and death at some date in the future or dates in the future... There are times when a certain amount of violence is required earlier on in order to stop bad stuff happening afterwards. And I think, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, there are people who would say that a little bit of violence in 1936, in the when the Germans walked into the Rhineland, or is that 38? No, 36. When the Germans walked into the Rhineland, if the French had said, uh, sorry about that, but no, and the French had gone into Rhineland and bait shite out of them when 
that that might have helped. That might have you know there was quite a lot of nastiness that happened in Europe between uh, 1939 and 1945 that could have been avoided. And other situations, not only that one. So there are times, even on a, gr- a gross utilitarian point, you know, sometimes a little bit of violence at the right time in the right place might avoid an awful lot more violence. But if you take it, the, this principle, of the absolute Pacific principle, well then, you know, it's like Murray Rothbard used to say about libertarians, isn't it? The, 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 the libertarians would be fine if men were angels. But my suspicion, Gary, is that men are not angels. Mm. So, Michael, you actually wanted to talk about excise, from exercise to excise. Exercise, getting ex- exercised about excise. As we are all aware at this stage, um, there had been a reduction, or a postponement, whatever you want to call it, excise duty on petrol and diesel hath gone up because there had been a kind of a, a, a pullback on it, I think. Probably was it COVID-related? We decided we were, we were going to keep the price of petrol and stuff down because because we're, we were catching COVID. Anyway, decided it's gone back up. And there was an off... The language that's been happening around it has been curious and interesting. But there are two takes out of it that I just... I want... I don't know. We might have talked about this before, but there's... When I, I, I listen to our friends, not our... We don't have enemies... We have opponents, we have intellectual opponents, people with whom we disagree, but we have no enemies, Gary. Uh, Our opponents on this. But our friends, I think, are slightly missing the point, at least some of them that I've seen, which is that this is about uh, a revenue-raising exercise. Because, of course, I think it was Michal McGrath said that if we don't do this, the state will lose 700 million. And absolutely right to call him out on that. That's a ridiculous thing to say. The state is going to take 700 million extra from the wealth-producing sector of the Irish economy that buys things. Uh, I heard Peter McVeary the other day being outraged at the notion of a tax cut for people who are working, even though since uh, Cormac Lucy, I think, has pointed out, if you were to look at the way that wages have gone and the tax bans have gone in 2015, there has been this creep where more and more people are getting into the top tax band. People who in other countries would be so far away from talk. I mean, and countries that we would think of have, as being fairly well taxed. We are the most progressive tax uh, country in the OECD, which means the highest level of taxes paid by the people at the top and low, and people at the bottom paying almost no tax at all. That's progressive. But Gary, in my humble opinion, this is another example of people thinking that this is about it's about taxation. It's not. We know the, they are awash with revenue. It's not about revenue. They're desperately looking for revenue. Although USC, I think, is a good example of that why you shouldn't you, you get rid of other taxes. People they all want the USC gone, but actually, it's one of the few taxes which spreads the tax base in this country, and we have a problem with that. The reason they put up the price of petrol is because they wanted to put up the price of petrol. They want petrol to be dearer. They want I, they want diesel to be dearer. That is the the, the increase is not a f- is not a glitch as a result of a desire to raise revenue. This is the purpose. It's like you know, there's been a lot of discussion, Gary, about uh, traffic in Dublin and traffic management, queues in traffic, and driving on Dublin has become horrible. That's not a flaw in traffic management. That's the design feature. It is supposed to be hard to get around Dublin. They want it to be hard to get around to Dublin in a motor car. So they'll put in cycle lanes that nobody uses and to take and, and bus lanes which are not, not rooted for very many buses in order to take a, 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 a traffic course out away from the private motor car because they don't want people to be able to drive comfortably, drive, 
private motor cars. We're going to get rid of diesel power cars and petrol cars. And you can point out to them again and again and again, as we and other people have, that there are large, large numbers of people, especially in rural Ireland, who will not be able to afford to buy an electric car or hybrid. And there is no significant market in second-hand ones. And even the ones that they do have second-hand, you've got massive problems because of the longevity of the battery. So I just wanted to make that point, Gary, that we, we, when we're looking, when you, not to get distracted in a sense by gov- when the government does things and you think, oh, well, this is because they're incompetent. They are incompetent, Gary. I don't doubt they're incompetent. They are very bad at many, many things they do. But just because they're making us miserable, don't assume that's a mistake. It is very often precisely the plan is to make us miserable. They want us to be miserable in order that we will do something else that they want us to do. So they make drink more expensive. They're going to... Great news here. We've got beefier, better sugar taxes coming on the way. Do you remember the, the study we found, Gary, from Cornell University in the United States on the effect of sugar taxes? The result of which was the only cor- the only strong correlation they could find was an increase in beer consumption. But that's the thing. Like, you bring in the sugar tax, then that causes the increase in beer consumption. Then you bring in the alcohol levy, and oh, yeah. that moves people onto spirits. And then you just wait for a cold snap to kill off all the alcoholics, and your policy is, you know, the new circular economy. Oh, and then, of course, you throw into that, while they're on the vodka... You, you you take their vape away from them. Uh, you tax tobacco on, uh, so high that nobody can afford to buy it in a shop anymore. So they just, And then they discover that you can actually get it on the black market down out of the back of somebody's car. And you get in a situation where, having got rid of the vapes and taxed the shit out of the fags, but created this fantastic black market in smuggling, that you're, you, you're, you, you can emulate Australia, where since it was it 2019... Youth smoking has gone up by six times. Anyway, there's my point. We shouldn't assume just because something makes us unhappy and miserable and poor that that is a result of government being bad at what they do. It Very likely, it's what the government precisely wanted to achieve. And maybe we should reflect a little bit more on that, that we now actually have governments, we have politicians sitting in their offices thinking, how can we make the bastards a little bit more uncomfortable? We can make it colder for them in winter. If it's hot in summer, we can stop them using air conditioning. We can make sure that if they have trees, they can't chop them down without a license. And they have a turf bog, they can't save turf. If they have a boiler, we want them to put a, we will stop them putting boi- back boilers in anyway. We'll make them put in heat pumps even though they they don't work. Hmm. If they live in a rural area, we'll stop we'll, we'll make it too expensive to be, to drive to town. Yeah, we can make them poor. We can make them cold, miserable, and we can make them sober. I mean, it's a joy for a politician at the moment. And all the things and the ways the different ways you can make people Poor and miserable. Very satisfying. It must be a very satisfying occupation, Gary, do you not think? Well, I'm only thankful that they've solved all of the large structural issues and therefore acquired the time to spend on all of these absolutely trivial matters. That is absolutely... When we have, as we have adverted to before, when the big news from the Department of Health is that the department is going to put on calorie count labels and health warnings on bottles of wine. That is the la- that is one of those strong signals. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, lads. It's okay. We have everything else sorted out. Don't worry. We have solved all the big problems. 
We're only just tidying up now. Oh, sorry, before we go. Did you see, I mean, just we're talking pure comedy here. Uh, Donnelly has has announced that it would not be in the interests of the state. Talking of big problems that have been solved here, Gary. It would not be in the interest of the state to give an estimate of the final cost of the children's hospital. Not while negotiations are ongoing, Gary. Because apparently... <laughs> Do you remember Leo told us that the hospital would, barring a meteor strike, would be open by 2020? Yes, I also remember when uh, it, it cost something like 600 million to build. <laughs> uh, I've really got to give it to uh, to Jimmy Sheehan because we interviewed him what, like four years ago, when the government was still saying it was about it was only going to cost about a billion, and he was saying it definitely wouldn't come in for less than 2.1. And really, we've just got to congratulate him on his amazing ability to predict that like he he was maybe it'll go above that but he was fairly dead on i mean he was he was he was confident and in fact later on i think he actually opted up he said well maybe we're looking more like 2.4 now Uh, it is fantastic a hospital which was all no if it had opened in 2020 it would have been late but it was absolutely certain to open in 2020 now 2023 halfway through and gary I suppose the point I wanted to make was there. We can't give numbers because we're still in negotiation. Three and a half years after it's supposed to be absolutely, certainly, positively, definitely open, we're still in negotiation. And yet there was a wonderful article saying, basically, you know, that everything is fine on the hospital. It's almost, it's 60, 70% built. As actually, you know, considering everything is actually doing quite well. (laughs) Honestly... You couldn't write comedy like this and get paid for it. I mean, people, nah, it's just not credit. But it was out there. It was published. People read it. I saw people read it and take it seriously. Um, it's fantastic. I am confident that if you ever actually got into the books, and you never, nobody ever will get the full book, that we're heading. By the time this is all done and dusted, it is going to go, it'll, it'll be close to three billion. If it, if it indeed ever does open. Uh, just before we go, Michael, just more of just a line to mention, something I thought was interesting than anything else. Uh, every major Sunday broadsheet in this country has at least one article in it about how, uh, Fine Gael is unhappy with Leo Varadkar's leadership and Simon uh, Harris is the uh, natural successor to him. Interesting, the timing and that they've all... There's nobody spinning there, is there, Gary? There's nobody feeding back stuff out of the, out of the Department of Health, for example. That's not happening at all. And also, just isn't it interesting that with in exactly that context in the last week we've had we've had at least with two different reports saying that actually the children's hospital is a, a much better looking project than people made it out and it's because people didn't understand the nature of the project and it was nothing to do with the ghastly incompetence of Simon Harris at all because Simon is just brilliant is it possible Gary and correct genuine question genuine question is it possible that Simon is going to ride repeal all the way to the Taoiseach's office? Is it still is it still the brownie points he got from repeal, being the face of repeal? Is that what still has him so much in credit with our friends in the media? Uh, it's part of it in, in certain journalists. But no, it's Harris is, is very effective at working the media uh, and putting stories into the media and that sort of thing. So he has built some solid relationships with journalists. Um, it also helps that, you know, Fine Gael's front bench is, um, how should I put this delicately, uh, total and abject shit at the minute. Yeah, it's a, li- it's a lit 
little bit like the officer corps of the Light Brigade 20 minutes after they attacked the guns. It's a rather thin, and those that have survived are limping. I must say, for Simon Coveney, it must be a little bit annoying that, that everybody has just sort of passed Simon over and they're just saying, well, it's obviously not going to be Simon, it's, just, it's going to be Harris. Or, um, do you know who I think would be an interesting choice? And there have been one or two voices. I Maybe it's too much to hope for, but Heather Humphreys. Heather would be an interesting choice, wouldn't she? Again, I ask. Why? Well, par- I mean, if, you, if you're if you a Fine and you want to sort of do some paradigm shifting and you want some ceiling breaking, it would mean that uh, Fine Gael would beat Fianna Fáil. To, and I always assume that Fianna Fáil would have a woman leader before Fine Gael, But they could beat them and be the first major party, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and some a Fine Gael once said that to me and I said, Mary Lou? No, no, Mary Lou, not major party. And he said, well... Anyway, so Fine Gael, which would get there, and maybe that would mean first woman Taoiseach. Also, Heather is, I think, a Presbyterian, so she would be the first uh, Presbyterian Taoiseach, first major party to have a non-Catholic as a leader. Be all sorts of good stuff. Now, Heather is not a hundred percent on board with some of the more woke social stuff. Heather is a little bit of a woman from Kevin Monaghan, you know. A little bit too much common sense going on there. But still, woman, Protestant, you know, it's kind of cool. And there are, Gary, never underestimate the number of people in Fine Gael who, who also hate Simon Harris. I mean, there are people who like him, but there are, there are people in there who hate him as well. Well, on that note of, of Michael coming out for Heather Humphreys, uh, I think we should end this, Michael, before you have a chance to say anything else. And on the note that I love everybody and I'm not in Fine Gael, so I wouldn't get a vote. But other than that, have a lovely Sunday. It's going to be scorching hot, even in Ireland, and Gary's going to love it. Yeah. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.